Greetings, family. I am Pastor Jeremy, and I'm just so glad you joined us for this lecture today. Um, I'm super excited, so I just want to jump right in. Just follow me for a second. Uh, the year is 1739. The place, Bristol, England. The occasion, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, is preaching a sermon entitled Free Grace. In this sermon, uh, he presents the gospel to a gathering of thousands, saying, the grace or love of God, uh, which cometh our salvation, is free in all and free for all. He says this not in a sanctuary or a church or Oxford University where he was accustomed to preaching, but somewhere he probably thought he'd never proclaim the word. Um, so let's back up just a little bit before we go further. Um, the entire reason Wesley was in this place was that his friend and fellow preacher from his time at Oxford, George Whitfield, invited him to Bristol just as he was preparing to take a journey to America. But before he left, he demonstrates for Wesley the benefits of preaching out in the open air, most often in fields. Um, before seeing it, this would have been something that would have been unimaginable uh, to Wesley. But even still, when he sees it, it freaks him out quite a bit. Uh, he later wrote in one of his journals, I could scarcely reconcile myself at first to this strange way of preaching in the fields, of which he set an example for me on Sunday. He's referring to George Whitfield. Um, I had been all my life till very lately, so tenacious of every point relating to decency and order that I would have thought the saving of souls almost a sin if it didn't happen in a church. Isn't that wild? Here we see our very own founder have a change of heart around what it what it means to do church and what doing church looks like. Um, and you know what the kicker is? A few days later, he preaches his very first open, uh, open air sermon to that same group of people, forming them into Methodist societies. It said that thousands were in attendance. One of the best things about open air preaching was that it made the gospel accessible to those who were often excluded from the church at the time. It brought the gospel of God's grace within arm's reach of uh, the poor who are often unwelcomed in lofty uh, spaces of faith. The people considered to be the dregs of society as sinners and nothing more. To those whose jobs and need to provide for their family kept them from attending typical worship times. I mean, we see in the quote from Wesley that I just read that for most church folks at that point, decency and order were valued above saving souls and how much more above the general well-being of fellow humans. Uh, but with field preaching, Wesley attracted all of these people and more and made the statement that the word of God wasn't just for those with material wealth or who appeared to be upstanding citizens by class, but for everyone. This brings us to our second theme as we make our way through our Rekindle Sermon series, uh, as, as we continue a journey, journeying through the Gospel of Luke and remember our Wesleyan heritage as United Methodists. Our theme this week is belonging and inclusion, more specifically that all belong and will be loved in the UMC. All will be heard, respected, and engaged. All will be free to develop their personal relationship with God and to serve fully in ministry to Jesus Christ. Um, with the history just explored, we see that striving towards those goals has been a part of our identity since the very beginning. Today, as we open our Bibles to the 10th chapter of Luke, uh, we're going to read a story that you've likely heard many times before uh, that beautifully displays why when we build the table of the church, it has to be long and wide to make sure that everyone has a seat, to make sure that everyone knows that they are included and that they belong. Once again, uh, opening our Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 29 through 37. So let's read them together. 
But the legal expert wanted to prove that he was right, so he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He encountered thieves, who stripped him naked and beat him up and left him near dead. Now, it just so happened that a priest was going down the same road. When he saw the injured man, he crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. Likewise, a Levite came to that spot, saw the injured man, and crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. The Samaritan, who was on a journey, came to where the man was, but when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, tending them with oil and wine. Then he placed the wounded man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took two full days' worth of wages and gave them to the innkeeper. He said, take care of him, and when I return, I will pay you back any additional costs. What do you think? Which of these three was a neighbor to the man who encountered thieves? The legal expert said, the one who demonstrated mercy towards him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Okay, uh, so just to give us a little context, a legal expert who wanted to test Jesus uh, had asked him what he must do to gain eternal life. Jesus, as he often does, uh, responds, uh, answers a question with a question. He says, well, what's written in the law? The legal expert responds, love God and love neighbor as yourself. Still in the mode of testing Jesus, when Jesus tells him that he's correct, he responds with a more philosophical question. And who is my neighbor? Jesus then tells the story we've come to know as the parable of the good, as of the good Samaritan, which we just read. So let's dig into that a little bit. Uh, starting with the man who was robbed and beaten, possibly the most notable thing about him is that there really is nothing notable about him. We don't know his name. We don't know his ethnic background. We don't know uh, what he does for work or his religion. Um, all things that, much like today, would greatly influence how he's treated. Uh, was he Hebrew? We don't know. Uh, was he a Gentile? We have no idea. The text doesn't tell us, and that's probably an intentional move. I'm sure it makes it easier for you, yourself, and myself as readers to put ourselves in his shoes. Uh, what completely defines this character for us is that he has been robbed and beaten and needs help. Uh, which, for us as readers, raises the question, who will help him? Who will help this man? Notable also is the fact that the road this man was traveling was well known uh, for being extremely dangerous and a breeding ground for thievery. So anyone traveling this road would, would have both been on high alert for themselves, uh, but also would have expected to see others being attacked or harassed. Back to the question, though, who will help this man? Now we're introduced to a few other characters who each, unlike the, uh, the beaten man, are given some kind of identity, whether it be their ethnic background or their job or their religion or all of these things. Our first passerby is a priest. Um, surely a religious leader of the Israelite people will help this man. One with special responsibility to help uh, keep the people of God connected to God through offering sacrifices and worship. I mean, uh, when you consider that uh, within a priest's duties uh, would have been to bury a corpse if they came across one on their travels, how much more was it their responsibility to help a person left for dead on the side of the road but still breathing? However, uh, we know that this priest crosses the other side of the road and continues walking as if he doesn't see the man. Next, uh, a Levite comes by and does the exact same thing the priest does. He crosses to the other side of the road and just leaves him there. 
a few weeks ago in our Wednesday Night Rewind Bible study, uh, this passage came up um, uh, by chance, and a very astute St. Luke asked what the difference between a priest and a Levite is, or at least why the text seems to make the distinction. Well, first I say that even though all priests are Levites, not all Levites would have been priests. Priests would have been specially chosen and trained individuals from the tribe of Levi. Uh, other Levites that weren't trained to be priests were still given special roles to play within the temple and had access to places and things within the temple that the average Israelite wouldn't have been privy to. It's possible that the author set the story up so that the three individuals who come across the beaten man would descend in social order, uh, with the priest being the highest, the Levite being, uh, being second, and the assumption would have been that the third person would be an average everyday Israelite. Um, but the original readers would have been shocked and surprised to see who the third person actually ended up being. We know, of course, that the last person to come across this man, who was in dire need, uh, was the person that the parable is named for, the Good Samaritan which would have sounded like a contradiction to the original readers. This Samaritan sees the man, cares for his wounds, gets him to an end, and pays for his stay. By making the Samaritan man the one who helps him as opposed to the priest or the Levite, Jesus shocks his crowd but also forces them to re-examine their prejudice against the people they would have considered unclean and lower than themselves. People they wouldn't even share physical proximity to or touch because they believed that to do so would have made them unclean also. If a Samaritan could do such good and show such mercy where Israelites had failed to do so, what did it mean about the strict social boundaries that they had drawn between themselves? Um, was it possible that their exclusion of these people was baseless and actually harmful to, to everyone? Um, not only does the Samaritan man pay the innkeeper, uh, two full days of wages. He asks him to look after the beaten man and tells him that he would come back and pay for any of the man's expenses that exceeded this payment. Here's an interesting thing that kind of leads us back to our Wesleyan heritage a little. Uh, we're led to believe that the innkeeper trusts the Samaritan man and does this. Uh, but the Samaritan man also trusts the innkeeper to care for the man in his absence. He doesn't do the work of caring compassion on, the, uh, on his own. He invites others in and trusts them to do the work as well. This is kind of like how once the crowds that John Wesley preached to in the fields were shaped into Methodist societies, and then eventually down the road into churches, preachers, uh, preachers trusted uh, lay folks to preach, lead worship, and carry on the daily functions of the church in their absence. Since there were so few of them, preachers would travel a great distance to officiate over the sacraments at different churches. While they were traveling, the people would carry out the, the everyday duties of the church on their own. Uh, so and many of these people would have been the same kinds of people that would have been excluded from hearing the gospel in a church, uh, but would have been preached, would have been reached to do field preaching. So those who were at first least expected to be about the work of the kingdom were those who actually carried it out, just like the Good Samaritan. Jesus ends this passage by asking the legal expert, which of the people in the story were the man's neighbor? He answers, the one who took mercy on him. Jesus tells him to go and do likewise. Anyone can be our neighbor, regardless of ethnic background, religion, or occupation. All that's necessary is kindness and mercy shown one to another. All that's necessary is us uh, holding each other with a sense of belonging and community. It's, it's us realizing that in order for us to be the church, everyone must be included. 
uh, in the same sermon that I started our time with uh, that I mentioned uh, that John Wesley was preaching free grace, uh, he says this. It does not depend on any power or merit in man. No, not in any degree, neither in whole nor in part. It does not uh, in any wise depend on either, uh, either on the good works or righteousness of the receiver. Not on anything he has done or anything he is. It does not depend on his endeavors. It does not depend on his good tempers or good desires or good purpose or intentions. Here, he tells thousands of people that God's grace, that the grace of God, the love of God is free to all. We are called to do this thing. 